Welcome to the audio podcast for the main service of Northridge Church. Our hope is that this will be a tool that blesses and challenges you in your walk with Jesus. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, you can visit us at nrchurch.ca or join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until we meet, be blessed and enjoy the word for today. Do you ever notice how I cheer for myself every time he announces that I'm about to preach? Uh, pre- um, hey, Matt, can you do me a favor? Um, and anybody else, if you did not grab a communion cup on the way in, we've still got the COVID-friendly communion cups. And so if you didn't grab one, Matt, do you mind grabbing one for me? Because I was negligent to do that. Uh, normally, this is the time of the program where I would say something to make myself a little more real. Usually, I tell some self-deprecating joke or something. Um, and thank you very much. Uh, well, maybe I can do that now because I always struggle with opening these things, and you can watch me do that. Um, But to be honest, we've got so much to work through uh, in the text today that if I take time to amuse you, uh, it's going to, we're going to be here forever. And so let's move right in. The other reason I want to kind of jump right into it is I feel like we left last week. Those of you who were here with us last week, uh, we did Romans 7 last week, and it almost feels like a little dot, dot, dot. My wife is famous. If you ever get a text from Carolee, she liberally uses, is that called an ellipsis, Rob? Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, uh, th- she likes to use her dot, 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 just to let you know there's more coming. It's, 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 there's, and that's how I feel like we've left things in Romans 7. Remember, one of the key ideas in Romans 7 was Paul saying, like, man, the things that I want to do I don't do. And the things that I desperately don't want to do, I keep doing. The flesh part of me is just doing a number, and it's it's a barrier for me. And it's almost like we left you last week with this dot, dot, dot. In fact, I had a conversation with a fellow after the service last week. It's like, okay, yeah, Paul is saying these are the the things I want to do. I'm not doing the things I don't want to do. I do. Well, how do we fix that? And the answer, in a way, comes today in Romans 8. And so that's the other reason I want to jump right into it is is Romans 7 asks the question and Romans 8 offers some hope. Romans 8 offers some direction. And before we do anything else, we want to gather around the answer to the question, and that is Jesus. And so we are going to share a time of communion right now. So if you could actually take out your wafer-like cracker substance and uh, we want we want to bring focus to who we're talking about tonight at uh, Saturday night service we we do a recovery focused service but I say recovery focused but it's really a Jesus focused service we preach the gospel over and over and over again and we want all the focus all the glory to come and be put on Jesus And that's what we're doing today. Jesus himself called us to remember what it was he did. Remember in his last moments of life, he gathered those closest to him. And he he held up the bread. They're sitting around the table. He held up the bread. And he says to them, this is my body broken for you. And he calls us to remember what it is that he's done. And at, at the time he's saying, he's saying what he's going to do. His body will be broken. But now we live in a time where his body has been broken for us. And so we share this communion wafer, remembering what it was that Jesus did for us. 
So if you wouldn't mind just kind of holding up, and let's pray over this wafer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that you made a plan. You made a plan from the perspective of eternity, knowing the beginning and the end and everything that was going to happen in the middle. And you knew in that middle that we would be broken. And that our brokenness would lead to the wage of death. That's what we would do as payment for our brokenness. So, Father, we thank you that you made a plan that your son would come and that he would be broken in our place. That his body would be broken for us. Today, in this moment, we remember what it is that Jesus did for us as we take the bread together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread. In the same way, Jesus took a cup of wine, and we've got juice. And for those of you who have not been at Northridge for Community before, I warn you now, this is not delicious juice. But this represents the blood of Jesus. And this is generally, and in a monthly way, it, it's a time of repentance for me. Because I know that I go through my days and my weeks and throughout the month forgetful of what it is that Jesus did for me. And, and if I'm not forgetful, sometimes I diminish or I don't give enough value to what he's done when he shed his blood for me. But as we're going to talk about today, the shedding of his blood, it covered over everything that was ugly about us. And it, it literally makes us look different before the Father. Now when we stand before the Father, all he sees is the righteousness of Jesus because of this blood. So if you wouldn't mind holding up the cup, and let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself to be crucified on the cross. We taught last night about how you were not a victim. You, you did not stumble in and you weren't captured, punished, and crucified. You gave yourself. According to the will of the Father, you gave yourself as a sacrifice. You came and you fulfilled the law. You paid every price. You paid, you settled every debt with your shed blood. So we remember what you did, and we are so thankful for what you did, saving us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's take the cup together. Um, to be perfectly honest, communion is something that's on our, our church calendar. It's something that's scheduled but it's amazingly appropriate for today. It, you know, honestly, I could probably make a connection every Sunday because we want Jesus to be at the center of everything that we do. But we're going to see Jesus' fingerprints all over every bit of hope that we have from Romans 8 today. So with that, I'm going to say a lot of words in the next little bit. And my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit will help you discern that he will give you soft soil for his word to fall into. We're going to read every word of Romans 8. And I pray that you would digest it, be challenged where you need to be challenged, be comforted where you need to be comforted, that he would do his work in you. Today, I, I don't normally do this. If you look at the way we've started here, Romans 8, chapter 1. I don't normally do the highlighting for you, but if you've got your own Bible, this is probably 
a verse that you've highlighted. And you're going to see several throughout today that I've highlighted. There are some key verses. And I call them key because they're the ones you will most likely see on your mom's or your grandma's wall. Um, these, are, these are the ones that uh, people have made a lot of money um, producing and, and putting up on display. Uh, and sometimes they are wielded with the greatest of intentions and, and with good results. And sometimes um, they can be wielded out of context. And I want to make you aware of that, but I also really want you to see some of the rich and beautiful verses that we've got here just in Romans 8 alone. It starts like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And honestly, this verse is the aftermath of what Jesus did on the cross. When we are saved by Jesus, we are covered in his blood. We are washed clean. And so what the Father sees in us is his Son. He doesn't see all of our shortcomings, all of our brokenness. All he sees is Jesus. And because of it, because of that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The simple de declaration of no condemnation comes to those who are in Christ Jesus. Since God the Father does not condemn Jesus, neither can the Father condemn those who are in Jesus. That's key. And this place of confidence comes kind of as an echo after potentially the confusion and the conflict of Romans 7. Romans 7 can leave us feeling very unsettled. Now, Paul looks to Jesus and he finds our standing. He, they, he finds his standing in Jesus. But this chapter is more than just an answer to Romans 7. It ties together thoughts from the very beginning of the letter to, to the Romans. There's a little comment here or a quote here from Poole that says this, The law is weak to us because we are weak to it. The sun cannot give light to blind eye, nor from any impotency, not from any impotency in itself, but merely from the incapacity of the subject it shines on. It's not because the sun isn't bright that we can't see it. Does that make sense? Let's move along uh, to the next part of Romans uh, 8, verse 2 now. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's look at that first part. The law of the sin and death was a strong and absolute law. And we need look no farther to understand the law of sin than when we look in the mirror and we sin in our, see sin in ourselves. We, we can understand the law of death every time we visit a graveyard. There is something final. We don't walk this earth anymore. It is absolute when we, when we hit the cemetery. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ is stronger still. It supersedes the law of sin and death. 
And the law of the Spirit frees us from the law of sin and death. We're going to talk about that today. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his Son. The law can do many things. And, and I always want to be careful not to denigrate the law. The law is a gift to us. It can guide us. It can teach us. And it tells us about God's character. But the law cannot give energy to our flesh. It can give us the standard, but it can't give us the power to please God. The law could not defeat sin. The law only reveals sin in our lives. Only Jesus can defeat sin. And he did just that through his work on the cross. This verse here, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That could be a confusing statement. In order to defeat sin, Jesus had to identify with those bound by it. By coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, by, by coming wrapped in skin, we, we talk about at Christmas time, uh, God incarnate, the, the body version of the Father. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul carefully chooses words here, indicating that Jesus was not sinful flesh, but he identified with us in our sinful flesh. Does that make sense? So by no means was Jesus ever burdened or tripped up by being incarnate. But he identifies with us. I, I like to think of it almost like God sent Jesus to battle the flesh on, on its own turf, in its own arena. And we know that Jesus was victorious. And this last part, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, because Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, and because we are in Christ, because we are in Jesus, we fulfill the law. The law is fulfilled in us in, regards to obedi in regard to obedience because Jesus' righteousness stands for ours. The law is fulfilled in us in regard to punishment because Jesus took on any punishment that the law demanded. Let's go to verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And there's a concept we need to understand here. Paul gives us almost like this measuring tool where we can hold this up like a mirror on our own lives. And we can see if we walk in the spirit or if we walk in the flesh. We, we can evaluate where our mind is set. The mind is a strategic battleground. And I don't want to humanize this, this topic too much. This is not a, uh, a blood and guts war we're talking about. But the mind is a strategic battlefield where the flesh and the spirit fight. My mind, the, the flesh part of my mind, it goes to dark places. But when I'm living in the spirit, it shows me and points me towards light. But the battleground is often taking place in the mind. 
when our minds are set on the things of the flesh, when we are carnally minded, when we're, when we're thinking about things of this earth, we bring death into our lives. We talk about this a lot at SNL and our Saturday night services, is that when we follow our desires, when we're driving the bus of our lives, when we are the kings on the thrones of our lives, almost inevitably it points us and leads us to a path of destruction. The more we pursue our own carnal instincts, the more we pursue the things of our flesh, the more it leads us to horrific places. However, when our mind is guided, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we're pursuing things of the Holy Spirit, when our eyes are on Him, when our mind is focused on Him, when our hearts are set and in tune with Him, He leads us. He's on the throne and we are subject to Him and we follow His lead. And He leads us to beautiful places. And this is your first glimpse at our answer to the problem of Romans 7, where we, what we want to do, we don't do. And what we don't want to do, we just keep doing. Why? Why is this happening? And the answer is here. When we are on the throne of our lives, we just keep slipping into the things of the flesh, and we keep slipping into darkness. When our mind, when our heart, when we are in tune and in lockstep with the Holy Spirit, he leads us into life and light and hope and peace. He says here, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. The flesh, our very flesh, battles against God because it does not want to be crucified and surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. We almost have this fight-or-flight instinct to the Spirit sometimes. Do you know what I'm talking about? where we don't want to give up any authority in our lives. We don't want to give up any autonomy. We don't want to give up our independence. We want to do our thing. And, and our, our flesh actually battles against, it's hostile towards the Spirit. It does not want to live out Galatians 5.24, that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. In this battle to tame the flesh, Again, the law is powerless. It can't give us power. And, and here's the reason. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Our flesh won't submit to God's law. We may hope to put God... <laughs> I, I like this phrase. I stole this. We may hope to put God in debt to us by doing good things. Do you ever get to this place where you've had a really good day? You served at the food bank... You helped your little old lady, lady neighbor move stuff. You've done all these good deeds. I don't, those are terrible examples off the top of my head. But um, you've done all these good deeds. And do you ever kind of sit there and bask in it like, oh God, you must love me. I have earned your love. And, and almost in the back of my mind, God, you owe me. You owe me a good night's sleep. You owe me... Uh, some kind of blessing for all the good that I've done. We may hope to do that, but that's not how it works. In the flesh, we cannot please God. Even in the, if the flesh does religious things admired by men. Here's another quote from Newell. Many sincere people, th this is really good. Um, 
read this with me. Many sincere people are yet spiritually under John the Baptist's ministry of repentance. Their state is practically that of the human struggle, excuse me, practically that of the struggle of Romans 7, where neither Christ nor the Holy Spirit is mentioned, but only a quickened but undelivered soul in, strugg- in struggle under a sense of duty, not a sense of full acceptance in Christ and sealing by the Holy Spirit. Let's move on to verse 9. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now, because the Holy Spirit is given to every believer when they are born again, every Christian has within them a principle higher and more powerful than the flesh. Last night, um, we prayed with uh, the guys and ladies at SNL, and six people made a decision to become children of God. Yeah, it was an amazing, beautiful night. Yeah, you can clap for that. Thank you, Jesus. When that happens, we describe that as, as leaving the pathway to death and becoming a new creation, following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And as a new creation, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we have in us that power that is stronger than the flesh. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go deeper in here. Right, we're going to camp in this next section for a bit. I've got lots of notes. Uh, verse 12 says this. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's a pretty famous verse here. Verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And I, no, I'm not going to go there. Um, Let's keep reading. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So let's go back up to the top. When we talk about being debtors, not the flesh. The flesh Again, this is the narrow sense of sinful flesh and rebellion against God. It gave us nothing good. The flesh gives us nothing good. So we don't have any obligation to oblige or pamper it. Our debt is to Jesus, not to the flesh. For if you will live according to the flesh, you will die. That is, that is you know, an earlier part of Romans, we talked about the wages of sin is death. The, the payment at the end of the day, your payday for living in the flesh is death. Way to go. Hard day's work has led you to death. But the, free, uh, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. That's the stark contrast between the two. And Paul constantly reminds us that 
living after flesh ends in death. And we need this reminder because we are often deceived into thinking that flesh offers life. Now, I, I'm going to take a little bit of a dangerous tangent here. Um, a lot of times, we look at the book of Romans, and especially the way it begins, and we ha- hear all this talk about the flesh. And when you hear about the flesh in the context of the immorality mentioned in chapter 1, we can think that Romans 8 is all about sexual immorality. And that's an easy equation to make when it comes to dealing with the flesh. But we need to understand that serving the flesh, living in the flesh, is so much more than just sexual immorality. Living for our bank balance is living in the flesh. When we draw comfort by how black our numbers are, we are living in the flesh. We are trusting in the flesh. And uh, maybe the biggest amen I could ask for is, have you ever been disappointed by your bank balance? Okay? It, it's, it's not, it is, is sinking sand. I'm going to be real for a moment, church. This is me pastoring you and, and being honest. You'll hear more about this at our AGM. It's been a weird year for our church. Um, because our, our, I, I'm, I'm very proud of our council, our staff, our volunteer leaders, and the way we have stewarded the resources that have come into Northridge. Uh, as usual, and talk to Ryan about this, he can tell you about kind of our legacy of, of working under budget. And we are working way under budget this year. And, and we've created a responsible budget based on 15 years of ebb and flow and, and knowing the norm for Northridge. And yet we're having a tough year financially. And I'm going to be real with you. One of the things that has happened over this this last season is we've become really tight-fisted. We've become very careful with our finances. And there's a a tipping point here. And for, for those of you who are regulars here, you're like, David's talking about money? He never talks about money. For those of you who are here for the first time, you're going, oh, pastor's talking about money. Here we go. But here's the tipping point. My dad's in the room. My dad will always tell you about the the value of stewarding God's resources well. And I'm I'm proud to point uh, to him, and I would hate that I'm doing this, as as a good example of stewarding finances well, of honoring God with your finances. And part of that is saving. But another part of that is generosity, is holding it loosely because it's not ours. And it's, this isn't where our hope comes from. This is not what we put our trust in. Because that's flesh stuff. When, it, when that becomes our hope, that becomes our God. And it will disappoint us. So church, I want to I wanna point out that I'm not looking, I don't, again, this is a dangerous thing because I know a lot of stories in the room here. And so some of you might be thinking, oh, he's talking about me. We talk about money. He must be talking about, that's not how it's going. Okay, this is a blanket statement I'm looking in the mirror right now. Is that living for our bank balance is living in the flesh. And that's only one example. Living for the approval of others 
is living in the flesh. Got a cough. My wife will tell me that you don't need to tell David every. You don't need to tell people that you need to cough. You just cough. It's okay. Living for our children is living in the flesh. When we are living for anything or anyone other than Jesus, if we're not following the Spirit, we're following the flesh. And, and so I, I, I feel really convicted that we need to understand that Romans is not ammunition against other people's sins. Romans was never meant to be wielded as a measuring stick by which we can evaluate other people and identify and call out other people's sins. It is best used as a mirror. And, and when we hold up Romans to ourselves, we are going to be able to search our soul almost as well as the Father. We know our intentions, either good or bad. And we, we know how we measure up and we know where, where we're at when it comes to uh, our, our standing with him. So let's move on. By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. This is the way we battle the flesh. When we put to death the deeds of the body, when we force our sinful flesh to submit to the Spirit, we must do it by the Spirit. And when we do that, we give him the glory for that subduing of our flesh? I don't know if that's the right word. Otherwise, we'll become like the Pharisees and we become spiritually proud. When we, when we feel like our good deeds are our own version of suppressing sin, when we walk around feeling good about how disciplined we are, and when we take credit for that, that's living in the flesh. If there's anything good about us, if we've done anything well, it's because of Jesus, because he has sent his spirit to fuel us and power us to fight that. Let's get to this key verse again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Now, living as a child of God means an intimate, joyful relationship with God not like the bondage and fear demonstrated by the law. A child of God can have a relationship with God so close that they may cry out, Abba, Father. And that Abba, many of you know, it, it translates into Daddy. It's this intimacy. This is not just, yes, Father. This is Daddy. This is your closest protector. The one that you submit to because you love them. Bondage in the flesh, it reminds me of all the movies I've seen, and, and you've seen them too, where you see this person, and, and, and they've made a mistake, and they, they try and fix this mistake on their own. Uh, the the after-school specials would be a kid who's done something dumb. All they need to do is just be honest, go to mom and dad, look, I did this dumb thing, and the movie's done in 13 seconds because they can fix it. But too often we see this long, circuitous narrative where they're trying to fix the problem on their own, and that just leads to another problem and to another problem, and it snowballs, become this massive plot line. But when we are understanding our adopted nature, God becomes daddy. 
And it's like, man, Dad, I screwed up. Can you help me? And he's like, yep. And he's there for us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Plainly put, Paul says that those who are God's children, born again by the Spirit of God, know their status because the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that this is so. Uh, these, these people who received Jesus last night, one of the things I love to pray over them is that they would have a confidence. They would have no doubt that they are saved. That the work that Jesus did, that they received in that moment, is a final fulfillment of the law. And they don't have to wonder, oh man, did I, did I receive Jesus the right way? Am I actually going to heaven? Have I actually been saved? Yes! You are adopted into God's family. You are a child of God. There's no more debate about it. The accuser will want to whisper in your ear and remind you of all those times you walked in death. But he has no power. He has no authority. The flesh is dead, and now we live in the Spirit. Now, this verse can be concerning, provided that we suffer with him. Because we're in Christ, we are also called to share in his suffering. God's children are not immune from trials and suffering. We talked about this again last night. The lessons that Jesus was teaching, he was teaching while on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where he knew that he was walking to be crucified. Again, he was not a victim. He was not kidnapped and dragged into jail. He was walking willingly to his death. He knew the suffering that was about to come. He knew that by being Jesus, that didn't mean he was going to be immune to suffering. Neither does it mean that as his children, we will not have suffering. We taught about this earlier in Romans, where suffering can actually be used to build endurance. And that endurance can lead to character. And that character, when we've, when we've suffered, when we've endured, when things have been, like things have worked out, that can lead to reasonable hope. That suffering can lead to reasonable hope. That's what Jesus has for us. We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In fact, our sharing in present suffering is a condition of our future glorification. As far as God is concerned, it's all part of the same package of sonship, of being an heir. No matter how much our flesh may want to have the inheritance of the glory without the suffering. It's not normal to want suffering. That's not a flesh thing. I, in my flesh, I don't, look, I don't go, oh man, I hope God's got a doozy for me today. I hope he, I hope he sends something really challenging. I want to level up in my faith. Maybe you do pray that. You're weird if you do. Okay. Uh, verse 18 goes like this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This next section is really interesting. Verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together 
in the pains of childbirth until now. Um, The glory that is to be revealed to us. I I love this statement. If we did not have heavenly hope, Paul considers the Christian life foolish and tragic. Yet, in light of eternity, in light of that hope, it's the wisest and best choice that anyone can make. That's kind of the first part. Then he gets into this, for the creation waits with eager longing. And I I find this fascinating. Um, Paul considers that creation itself, so we are a part of creation. We are God's favorite piece of work. But you'll remember that we are created in this landscape of creation as well. And, and creation itself is eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. And this is because the creation was subjected to futility because of us, because of our sin. But it will also benefit from the ultimate redemption of men. It's like creation knows that when, when God sets things right, when he comes again, that even creation will be restored to what it was originally intended to be. And the benefits, excuse me, this benefits not only the children of God themselves, but also all creation. Until that day, creation groans and labors with birth pangs. I just, I find that fascinating. And we're going to talk about how that relates to us in just a moment too. Uh, Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Um. This idea that we are adopted, uh, to me, studying this week has just been an explosion of an idea I'd never thought of before. And again, I'll refer to these, these guys last night who, who gave their life to Jesus. At that moment, the adoption papers were signed. The deal was done. That's a horrible way to look at an adoption like this, a transaction. But they have been signed into the family. When we receive what Jesus offers, we become adopted into God's family. We literally become his children. We literally become heirs to the throne. But it's almost like we're still at the orphanage here on earth. We know our standing. We know that our Father is coming to get us. We know that we are our fathers. But we've still got this time on earth, this time of separation. Separation might not be the right word. This time where our, our relationship is not as intimate as it will be. But we have the hope of this time where we will be together with our father, with daddy. And our adoption will not just be a title. It will not just be a legal relationship. But it will be 
a, an intimate, like I am with the Father. And so I, I want to kind of use that as a backdrop for some of what we're going to talk about here. It says here, we wait for it with patience. The, the fulfillment of our redemption is still something off in the distance, yet we hope for it with faith and perseverance, trusting that God is faithful to his word and the promised glory will be a reality. And this is key here. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Jesus did everything he was supposed to do. He lived his life perfectly. He, he wrapped himself in human skin. He became flesh. And yet he lived a perfect life. He was the spotless lamb who gave himself up to be sacrificed. He was crucified on a cross. He was laid to rest in a grave. And then he defeated death, rose again. Walked and taught for a while before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. But before he left, he told us something. He says, I'm going to go. And that must have been so disheartening for the disciples, whose minds had just been freshly blown by him defeating death. They're like, you're not going again? It, it just about killed us when you left the first time. Don't go again. And Jesus says, I'm going. But... I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And this is going to be even better for you. Better than, and, and do you ever long to walk with Jesus physically? Could you imagine sitting under his teaching, being witness to his miraculous healings? But Paul refers to this as well. When we see the things, if we're experiencing these things, that's not hope, that's not faith. That's just being a witness. But, but Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And you've been charged with a mission, but it's actually the Holy Spirit who is going to give you the power to do these things. When you wonder how you're going to win this battle with the flesh, how you're going to stop doing the things you don't want to do and start doing the things you want to do, the answer isn't to lift more weights or even read your Bible more. The answer is to live in the Spirit. Let the Spirit guide you instead of our flesh. And this is a, a bigger teaching than I probably should take time to do, but I can't ignore it in this moment. This idea of groanings too deep for words. The way that the Holy Spirit helps us it, it may, and part of it, include uh, speaking with the gift of tongues. And the tongues is one of those ones that's a tough one for people. Because if you haven't experienced it, it can be really weird. So let me take a moment to explain my experience with the gift of tongues. The way I view it is it's this spiritual language between the Holy Spirit and the Father. And it kind of takes me out of the equation. Have you ever not known what to pray? I know I have. There are some times, in fact, we fasted and prayed just this Friday for something that we are passionate about. And, you know, honestly, sometimes I am broken and I am incapable or I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss as to how specifically to pray. I don't have the words. In my humanness, I don't have the words. 
And so for me, my spiritual language is this opportunity for the Holy Spirit to talk to God. And here's the best way I can explain it. This is probably a terrible example, and if it is, just flush it, move along. But uh, we're, we're going to be remembering um, those who have fought for us, the, the frontline heroes, people who have fought in wars. And if you're like me, and if you've ever seen one of those reunions of somebody who's gone off to war, and then, you know, they're filming the kid in school, and then the, the mom or the dad comes up behind them. They don't know they're there. And you get to see the look of this war hero being reunited with their son or daughter. And it gives you all the feels. And, and to me, that's kind of an example of, of my part in this. I'm just almost like this. I don't know either of these people in the video. And yet I am being blessed by it. There's something happening. I, I, have, I have feelings from it. I've been encouraged, there's hope, there's, I don't know, all these different things. And it's in a similar way when the Spirit in me talks to the Father in my spiritual language, I get blessed. And I can't fully explain it. It's not something concrete where there's now this blessing of a new phone on my, I don't know, I had another bad example. But there's not a, a tangible blessing, but there's this, this residue of something beautiful that's happened. That, that groaning in me that I can't put words to happens between the Spirit and the Father I am blessed by. Okay, I'm going to move along here. Let's look at verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he, whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. I, again, this is a verse I've highlighted here because you've probably seen it in somebody's bathroom. And, and, and here we see God's sovereignty and his ability to manage every aspect of our lives is demonstrated in the fact that all things work together for good to those who love God. Even though we might face sufferings in this present time, God is able to make even those sufferings work together for his good. And our good. God is able to work all things. Not some things. All things. If that doesn't give you hope, if you think of your worst problem right now, okay, I'm going to give you a moment. Think of the thing, your biggest burden. The most hopeless, and sorry, this is, we're going to a dark place here, but the most hopeless thing in your life. The area where you just don't see a positive outcome. Do you believe that God can take that thing and make it something beautiful and good? Hard stories are the best stories. And again, this doesn't mean that every difficult circumstance has a happy ending. But do we believe that God is able to work all things for his good? 
Now, here's an interesting section. Again, um, I think Megan made the comment this morning that Romans 8 probably should be a three different sermons. And so if you're feeling like your forehead's getting warm, uh, there's a good reason for it. We're going to go into another big one here. Uh, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Uh, this eternal chain of God's working is seen in the connection between foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. God didn't begin a work in the Romans simply to abandon them in the midst of their present suffering. And here we need to understand God's ability to see all of eternity at a glance. To understand that God is not natural. He is not sitting in a chair bound in this moment of November 6th, 2022. God has seen November 6th. He's seen November 12th. At this moment, he can see November 1st. He can be pulled back. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He sees it all. And, and so we, we need to kind of pull out of our human mindset of understanding God in time. He's not, things are not rolling out for him as they're rolling out for us in this linear fashion. And so I got to do a, very quick teaching. You, you've probably heard the terms Calvinist and Arminian. The Calvinist teaching would be that God, and, and this is a, a verse that would be really key here, here, is that he picked and he chose some for heaven and some for hell. And that's a, a, hor a horrific oversimplification of Calvinism, but that he has uh, predestined some people to be with him for eternity, and he's predestined some people to be apart from him for eternity. The Arminian teaching is that God, from again his eternal perspective as the Alpha and Omega, he knows every, the, the narrative of every life in the moment. He can see my life from 1971 to, I don't know how long I get to live, but he gets to see the whole thing all at once. He knows the choices that I'm going to make. And he knows how uh, each life we lived according to our individual decisions and free will, that we, we get to make decisions. And I think that this is connected to love. And I'm going to try and do this in a succinct way. I, I've taught this before that um, if I were God, I think I would have created you all as robots, programmed to raise your hands to me and say, I love you, David. And you would never make a mess. You would never do anything wrong. You would never make me feel uncomfortable. Okay? But that's not love. Your ability to choose to love me or not is an essential ingredient in love. We can't have love without free will. Programmed love is robot love. God did not create robot love. He did not choose some people to love him and some people not to love him. Does that make sense? Um, this last part, to be conformed to the image of his son. I wrote this. However, our participation in this eternal plan is essential. Reflected in its goal that we might be conformed to the image of his son. And this is a process that God does with our cooperation. Not something he just does to us. Does that make sense? 
All right. Forget there, folks. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If you're looking for a next tattoo, that's a good one. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Or is it Christ Jesus who died for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Man, if this doesn't give you hope, if this doesn't make you feel like you could walk with a little more confidence and swagger, not because of anything you've done. This is the, this is the little kid who walks around knowing dad's right behind him so he can talk however he wants to the neighbor's dog or to um, the bully on the street because dad's right behind him. And, and if dad is for us, who could be against us? This question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We are secure from every charge against us. If we're declared not guilty by the highest judge, who can bring an additional charge? Now be on alert because the accuser has the full-time job of whispering in your ear the things by which you should be condemned, the things that should make you feel shame. It's his full-time job to whisper in your ear and tell you you're not good enough. That when, when the Bible says this, he's talking to other people who aren't as big a jerks or as big a sinners as you are. That's the voice of the accuser. Paul asks this question, who shall bring charge against God's elect? It's like asking, who is going to stand up and say that Jesus is not enough? Who can say that Jesus' sacrifice was not... Sorry, Jesus. Close, but no cigar. Who can do that? The answer is obviously nobody. The follow-up question is, who is to condemn? Who is legitimately able to condemn us? We are secure from all condemnation. And, and more than Jesus just paying the price for us, we get this picture here in Romans 8, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God and he is advocating for us. He is our lawyer. He's reminding God, as if he needs reminding, of what he did to already... We've covered that, God. That time where David's being a jerk, Jesus is saying to God, yeah, you know, we covered that. We, we paid that price. Don't worry about that. That's, that's done with. Who can condemn us? I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up. I'm going to close with these last words from Romans 8. Paul makes reference back to Psalm 44, verse 22, where it says this. Paul says, as it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But... Um, we follow up in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what our circumstances, none of the sufferings of this present time can separate us from the love of the Father. And our Father is not aloof. I love that word, aloof. He is not aloof. He is not someone who created the world, set it into motion, and then went and peaced out for eternity. We are not forgotten. In our moment of suffering, there is love and there is care. And he sends his Holy Spirit to give us everything that we need in this moment. In this line, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing which appears to be good and, and nothing which appears to be evil can separate us from the love of God. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. If that doesn't encourage you, if that doesn't allow you to walk knowing the Father walks with us, I described this last night, he, he doesn't just walk behind us and flex, he walks before us, he walks beside us, he covers over us and under us. There is nothing that can separate us from his love for us. We don't deserve it, we can't earn it, and yet he gives it. Um, I want to invite you to stand and worship. And I've got a special reward for hearing me talk for a really long time. My wife's actually going to come up and close the service. And so we're going to sing this song in response. Knowing how loved we are by God, we sing this song to him to give him glory and honor. And then Carolee's going to come up and close the service. Thank you for joining us for our main service. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, or if you just want to talk to someone about what you've heard on this podcast, please email us at info at nrchurch.ca. We'd love to get to know you better. Until then, be safe and be blessed.